in your Bible, please. The book of Philippians. It's where we began a study of this epistle of the Apostle Paul while in his first Roman imprisonment, which was in a rented home. When we arrived at verse 9, we arrived at his prayer for the Philippians. And that has taken us on a little parenthesis, sidebar, if you will, to the prayers of Paul while in prison. You'll remember the first one for us at verse 9 of chapter 1 of Philippians. And this I pray, that your love may abound still more and more in knowledge and all discernment, that you may approve the things that are excellent, that you may be sincere and without offense till the day of Christ, being filled with the fruits of righteousness, which are by Jesus Christ, to the glory and praise of God. There are four prayers in three of these prison epistles. All of them are prayers for intimate insight. Intimate insight. They're couched in the reminder of the love that they have experienced and are sharing. The Philippians were very special in the life of Paul. They were the first in Europe, the first church, and the first to continue to support him through his early ministry. This prayer is for the Philippians to perform, to perform to the praise of God. He wanted them to have an intimate insight into the Lord's providing for them to perform to his eternal praise. When we get to Ephesians, the very first of the prison epistles, you'll remember that at verse 15 of chapter 1, Therefore I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, this intimacy, do not cease to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you the spirit of wisdom, this insight, the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that you may know the hope of his calling. What is the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints? And what is the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe? According to the working of his mighty power, which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places. This prayer is a prayer for intimate insight into the plan of Almighty God. A plan that has a glorious future 
for those who are his beloved. His prayer is that they might, by the empowerment of the Holy Spirit, appreciate and allow the overwhelming future that awaits to buoy them up, to allow them to live here and now in a way that is pleasing to God. It's a plan that God has for his own, for his children, the beloved, those who are part of the family of God. We have a birthright hope. We have the promise of eternal life. The moment we believed in him, we have heaven as our home. And God already sees us positioned in Christ in the heavenlies. That's our hope. It's not a hope so. It's a hope that is solidly based in what God has promised. And what God promises, he always performs because he's a faithful God. It is also a prayer concerning an inheritance, a hope in the future, my birthright, our birthright, and our bequeathed right. God has withheld nothing from us the moment we believed. We have all of the spiritual blessings that God has for us now. But in the experiencing of life, there are limitations that we have in time and space, in these bodies. There is yet to be experienced an inheritance. We're not given all the great details in the scriptures about this, except it's uh, incorruptible. It'll never perish. It is laid up for us, reserved in heaven. There's so much more yet to experience in the future without the limitations of the present time, space, these bodies that we're in. And so this prayer in Ephesians concerns the plan. But it also is a plan for here and now. He also prays that they might, the Ephesians and we, enter in and experience the fullness of God's power now. Remember, Paul writes a little later in the epistle to the Philippians, everything in this life I consider nothing but rubbish in comparison to Christ. And the power that he has given for me to live here and now to his eternal praise. And that's what this prayer in Ephesians is all about. It's about intimate insight into this plan of hope, into this plan of inheritance, into this plan of power here and now. The second prayer is recorded for us in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 14. We have spent time looking at these prayers. 
For this reason, I bow the knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, from whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named, that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with might through his spirit in the inner man. All of these prayers are couched in the awareness that the Spirit of God is allowing, empowering you to experience his, his wanting to perform through you, Philippians, his plan for you in Ephesians. The riches of his glory to be strengthened with might through the Spirit in the inner man that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width, the length, the depth, and height to know the love of Christ which passes knowledge that you may be filled with the fullness of God. This is a prayer of intimate insight into his person that we might go down into the very depths of who he is, that we might see the broadness of this great and all-powerful and mighty God, and that we might see the depths of the intimacy. You remember in our study just last week, the names of God so significant there is Elohim, Almighty God, the Creator. There is Jehovah, Jireh, the Provider. God will provide. Abraham about to plunge the knife. Yahweh, I am, the self-existing one, the one from whom all things have come forth and are unto him. And he holds all things together. Before Abraham was, Jesus said, I am. Pater, the Greek word for father. Papa. Daddy. My prayer, Paul is saying for the church at Ephesus, is that you might have intimate insight into his person. The majesty of his person, an all-powerful God. The God who is not detached, but is the God who provides. And he is the God who is I am, who can provide and does provide out from within himself. Nothing withheld. And he... He loves us as our dad. This is the prayer, the second prayer that Paul had for the church at Ephesus that we've been privileged to look at in some detail. It brings us this morning to the last of the prison prayers of Paul in his epistle to the church at Colossae, Colossians Chapter 1. <clears throat> These three epistles have four prayers. This is the last one. 
And this prayer in Colossians chapter 1 at verse 9 encompasses all that we've already looked in greater detail in the previous three prayers. It's all there. It is a prayer for us to be pleasing to him, to appreciate and enter into the fullness of what it means to please him, to perform his will, to walk with him, and to work through him to his eternal praise. It's all wrapped up in this the last of his prison prayers. For this reason, verse 9, we also, since the day we heard it, that is, your love in the Spirit, referenced just before that, do not cease to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will, this intimate insight into the will of God in all wisdom and spiritual understanding, that you may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing Him. His will is that we walk with Him in a way that is fully pleasing to Him, being fruitful in every good work, that we work, that we allow His power through us to do those things which are pleasing to him. Fully pleasing him. Being fruitful in every good work. And increasing in the knowledge of God. Strengthened with all might according to his glorious power. For all patience, long-suffering, with joy. Giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light. You see, all of those prayers that we've previously looked at in some detail are encompassed in this last of the prison prayers of Paul. Intimate insight into his will. Walking with him working for him by his enablement. For what purpose? To be fully pleasing to him. Come on over to Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12. The will of God. So many believers throughout their life seem to struggle with what is the will of God for my life? Well, read the book. <laughs> it's very clear. And for us, it's all set forth in this prayer of the Apostle Paul from prison. Romans chapter 12, I'm reading verse 1. I beseech you, this is my heart's desire for you, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, my brothers and sisters in Christ, by the mercies of God, I'm calling upon you to respond 
to the mercies of God. You know, if there's, if there's anything I have to always be reminded of when I'm praying and when we pray for one another is that it's always easy for me and possibly for you to see what others really need in their spiritual life. And and then to ask God to bring about what we perceive or you perceive or I perceive is necessary, is beneficial for that one who may not be experiencing all that they should be, that I should be. I have to be reminded immediately. Because so often we get into this, Lord, do whatever needs to be done to bring them to the fullness of what you have for them. You ever think about what that means? Whatever needs to be done. I mean, that sounds good. But it has to be couched in mercy. Aren't you grateful that God hasn't dealt with you and with me? In accordance with what is best, apart from his mercy, I am. That's why, that's why David cried out, Be merciful unto me, almighty oh, oh God, according to the extent of your mercies. If there's anything I need is mercy. And he has not withheld it one iota. And this is the way we ought to pray for one another. For his mercy. I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. It makes good sense spiritually. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may test and prove, find this to be, What is the good and acceptable and perfect will of God? I beseech you by the mercies of God. Present your bodies a living sacrifice which is wholly acceptable to God. And it's the right thing to do. Come over to 1 Corinthians. Chapter 6, familiar verses, verse 12. All things are lawful for me, Paul's writing about problems that people had with all manner of different things they should or should not be doing. But all things are not beneficial, helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be brought under the power of any. Foods for the stomach, stomach for foods. They were having issues with what was offered to idols. Should it be eaten? Shouldn't it be eaten? 
but God will destroy both it and them. Now, the body is not for sexual immorality, but for the Lord. This physical body that we are in, that is what God has provided for us to live in to the praise of his glory as a child of God, is his. This body is not to be used in a way that is for self, for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And God both raised up the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. We have a physical body right now. This body that I'm in is his and it is to be used to his glory. I'm getting a new one. I'm awaiting that. I'm going to get a body like his glorified body. And that's his. So the body presently and the body in the future is his. For his praise to be used to his glory. Oh, there's limitations in this body. There are not going to be any in that glorified body. But in order for his will to be accomplished in this body... It needs to be presented, given to him. Because it's his. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a harlot? Certainly not. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a harlot is one body with her? For the two... He says, she'll become one flesh. This has to do with the sexual union of man and a woman. But he who is joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. We have a spiritual unity, unique, intimate relationship with him in this body. Flee sexual immorality. Every sin that a man does is outside the body. But he who commits sexual immorality sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, who you have from God, and you are not your own? For you have been bought at a price. That's the precious blood of Christ. Therefore, glorify God in your body. And in your spirit, which are God's. I've said this on many occasions. The single most significant statement in all of the scriptures is, in Christ Jesus. It encompasses so much. But the most amazing single statement in all the scriptures is, God in you. The hope of glory. Oh, yes, to be in Christ Jesus. But, oh, wow, Christ in me. The hope of glory. He's living in us, in this body. And it's his. He purchased it. He purchased you and me. He purchased all of us. To be yielded to him. To allow him to live through us.
Going back to Romans chapter 12. I beseech you, I beg of you, by the mercies of God, you present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable unto God. Someone has well said, the problem with a living sacrifice is that it's always crawling off the altar. <laughs> we, we keep failing to remember that once we yield and present these bodies to him, unto him, as a sacrifice, it's a done deal. In fact, this is in the, for those of you, you know, checking your heirs tense in the Greek that you have there. This is heirs. Once for all. You do this in your Christian life. Once for all. Yield. Surrender. Give to him what's his. his this body. This life. And don't keep taking it back. That's the problem of the living sacrifice. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove, put to the test and find what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. I'm going over to 1 John. 1 John, chapter 2. Again, I'm sure familiar verses to many of you. Reading from verse 15. Do not love the world or the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, everything that satisfies self, is not of the Father, but is of the world. And this world is so structured. And we, in the natural man, still in these Bodies of sin in a sinful world are inclined toward naturally to satisfy ourselves and to allow, because Satan himself has provided the means whereby we can focus on self and the satisfaction of self rather than surrender of self. For him. So the world, lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, the pride of life. The world is passing away, and the lust of it. But he who does the will of God abides forever. It's not a matter of satisfying self. It's a surrender of self to him, to his will. Back to Romans chapter 12. And do not be conformed to this world, but be 
transformed by the renewing of your mind. There's a worldview. Everyone has a worldview. They see the world in a perspective, in a way. And in the natural man, all unsaved see the world as that which is provided for self-satisfaction. What's in it for me? Every human being, especially those who are still dead in their sin, have this world view. What's in it for me? How can I benefit? But in Christ, Him in us, our worldview changes. It's not what's in it for me. It's what is to his glory. What is to the one who made it all? Who has provided it all? Who holds it all together for his eternal praise? You got to think differently. And only as Christ lives within does that renew our minds. We get a different perspective. We see everything differently in Christ. Oh, the world sneaks back in and the mind is always under attack. Lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, pride of life. What's in it for me? It's all there. That's not his will. His will is that all is unto him. And we yield. We surrender what he has given to us to experience life with him here and now and ultimately in a different body. I'm going over to Ephesians chapter 5. Reading from verse 15. See then that you walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time because the days are evil. Are you a cat person or a dog person? Or maybe you're a dog-cat person or a cat-dog person. We've had from the very beginning of our life together, cats and dogs together. Now, that doesn't mean they were always, you know, real close, but they were together in the same home. Of course, the cat always ruled. It's it's just in our experience, the cat always rules. But we had one cat. Her name was Samantha. The reason we we called him Sam, was because we weren't sure we got this cat somehow. I don't even remember how. But we didn't know whether it was a male or a female. So Sam was appropriate. We could go Samantha or Sam. Right? But, but Sam got under the hood of our car one day. 
And I went out, not knowing that the cat had found a warm spot in the engine of the vehicle and turned the car on. Boom! And when I did that, it went, you know, and it stopped the car, opened up the hood, and there was Sam. A mess. She had really been hit hard. And things weren't very pleasant to look at. I went in the house to get a towel to wrap her up. Came back out. Cat's gone. The cat was dead. Cat's gone. I had to call Nancy. She wasn't home. Tell her we'd lost Samantha. What do you mean we've lost her? Well, this is what happened. She's gone, went off to die. Later that night, outside, open the door, there's Sam. Resurrection. No, but there's Sam. Rush her to the vet. And very professional. She said, well, they get nine lives. I mean, I don't know. I guess all the vets know that. You know. But from that day on, Sam was no longer the cat that she was before or like most cats. You ever watch most cats the way they walk? They walk very carefully. Now, when they run, they don't necessarily run very carefully. We have one right now. He is a terror. When he flies, he flies, and he takes anything that's in his way with him, if it happens to be in his way. But most cats, when they walk, are very careful where they place their feet. They are circumspect, not careless. Well, poor Samantha, she would fall off of things. She would walk into things. From that head trauma, things changed for her. She no longer walked carefully. She had been traumatically changed through that experience. That's what sin does. <laughs> See, we are created in the image and likeness of God to respond to him. To walk with him. To do his will. To work for him. But sin changes all of that. And Paul is saying here to the Ephesians, look, as a a child of God in this wicked world, and there's not much time left in this world, you have to walk Very carefully, circumspectly. Now, I'm not a cat, but a cat has certain instincts, certain things that are built into its character. As a child of God, so do we. And one of the things we have is the indwelling Spirit of God who can and will and desires to have us walk very carefully in this world. Very circumspect. Watch where you go. Be careful. Be aware. See then that you walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise, 
redeeming, purchasing the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be unwise, but understanding what the will of the Lord is. And do not be drunk with wine in which is excess or dissipation, uh, riot, no control. That's what that word means in the Greek. But be filled. Be being continually filled. Be being continually filled with the Spirit. There's the ability for the child of God in this wicked world to walk very carefully. By being continually controlled by the Spirit. Not out of control. You drink, the, you drink the wine, you're out of control. It takes over. No. The control you want to be under is the Spirit that will allow you to do the will of God, to walk in this evil world very carefully. That's the prayer that Paul has. And it expresses itself through worship and through fellowship. Being continually filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord giving thanks always for all things to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another in the fear of God. The will of God is that the Spirit of God will control us in our worship and in our walk. Our worship. Remember Jesus in his earthly ministry very early on, he, he determined to go through Samaria. Now, Samaria was basically no man's land for the Jew. Jews and the Samaritans. They were, the Samaritans were a mixed marriage people. And so they were sort of a people that had much of the Jewish tradition, religion, culture, but then also the Gentile mixed. So it was a mix of the world and God's chosen, all mixed up. And there was no love of the Samaritans for the Jew. The Jew was a testimony to what they should have been, but by intermarriage, allowing the world to come in, they weren't. But Jesus determined to go through Samaria. He goes to a well, he sits down at the well, heated the day, and a Samaritan woman comes and he asks her for a drink. And uh, she's upset. Doesn't sit well with her. And she knows he's a Galilean Jew. She could tell just by his dress, by his dialect. Um, how come you're asking me, the Samaritan, for a drink? 
He said, if you really knew who it was that was asking you, it'd be different. I provide for you water. It'll spring up. Abraham gave us this will. Are you greater than our father Abraham? Go call your husband. Where are we going with this? If you really want to know, I have no husband. You said that correctly. Because you've had five men. The man you're living with now, he's not your husband. Oh, I perceive you're a prophet. Let's get off of my case. The Jews say we should worship in Jerusalem. We Samaritans believe in this mountain is where we ought to. Worship, you're a prophet. I'm, let's talk religion. Woman. Neither in Jerusalem nor on this mountain is the issue. It's not where. It's who and how. You worship. God, almighty God, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You can identify with that God. He desires. His heart is reaching out to those who are kissing to have an emotional, intimate relationship. Worship, that's what that word means. To have an intimate, personal, loving relationship with him. And the only way that happens is by worshiping him. You've got to worship the right one. It's who. And how is through spirit and truth. God seeks out those who will worship him in spirit and in truth. Well, you know how things go from there. Basically, she says, I know when, when the anointed of God, the Messiah comes, he's going he, he to show us all things, put everything right. I that am speaking to you, I am. I am. I am the Christ. Whoa. Everything changes from here. I'm not going to go into any more detail with that because we're going back to the prayer. She did a very significant thing. And it just sort of tucked in there in that, in that uh, encounter with Christ. She left her water pot and went back into the city and told everyone what happened, who she met. Come out, see this man. But she left her water pot. Did you ever give any thought to why? Didn't need it. Remember what he said? If you knew who it was, it's so asking of you a drink, I would give to you a well of living water springing up to everlasting. She 
identified. She knew now who he was, and there was a well within her. A spiritual thirst had been quenched that only he could quench. She didn't need the physical water at that time. She had a well springing up until eternal life. We are to, in Ephesians, allow the Spirit to well up within us in our worship of Him. Songs, hymns, spiritual songs. That's the will of God. The Spirit being continually filling us that we worship Him. It's interesting about music, especially church music. See, the biggest problem with church music is that it has almost from its inception, become a means of entertainment. Satisfying self. Most of the words, most of the music, the rhythms, are sensual. They are satisfying self. That's why really good, solid music is not necessarily always feel-good music. But music, in order to be worshipful, has to be exalting God. The music has to have as its purpose, as its focus, Him, not me. Worship is to him. And so we have taken music, a great gift of God, and we've taken it to satisfy ourselves. And the church itself has that music as a means to make us feel good. To satisfy. And to focus attention. Most of the words are about me, what I benefit. See, worship is first and foremost exaltation. We lift him up. And secondly, it's edification. It builds up the body of Christ. We are to what? Be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another. We edify. That's why I'm so often needing to change words in a hymn or a gospel song. So that we're not singing anything that isn't scriptural, that isn't exalting him and edifying the body. Speaking to one another in psalms, hymns, spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord, giving thanks always for all things to God. It's offering up to him. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And submitting to one another. The will of God is a submission to worship. 
It's a submission to fellowship. And you have to be very, very careful because this world wants nothing to do with that. Father, thank you for these moments this morning as we continue to look into the prison prayers of the Apostle Paul. A prayer of pleasing, fully pleasing our wonderful God. A prayer of pleasing him by discerning having intimate insight into his will. And then, by the empowerment of the Spirit to perform that will, yielding, presenting ourselves, walking with him, working for him, to his eternal praise. We thank you this morning. In Christ's name, amen.